All right, everybody, welcome to your June 30th edition of Cascadian Views. Uh, I'm here with Dan this week. JJ's taking the week off. Hey, right. we're still here. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I was stupid and only recorded my side of the last episode, so apologies for not getting that up. Yeah. Um, we have um, the Supreme Court wrapped up its term this week, and we're going to go over that in depth. It's going to be the majority of the episode, but we also had... A few, a few important things that happened, I think. The, the first is that the Democrats had uh, maybe the first big primary upset of the cycle, and that is the, the man, I believe, fourth in line in the House and angling for the top job if Democrats ever came back was defeated by a young woman. Um, every news organization I saw labeled her as a millennial, which I don't know why, but it is accurate. Um, yeah, 28 counts. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, it just reminds me that I'm technically a millennial too, which disturbs <laughs> me. Yeah. Uh, but took down this really icon of the party um, and will be going to Congress. The, the district is something like plus 30 Democrat. Yeah, it's a deep blue district. Mm -hmm. You know, mostly the Bronx and I think a little bit of Queens. So uh, I, I approve kind of wholeheartedly of, of this. Sure. This is one of the things I think we all pushed on. Even, and I'm, I'm couching my language here because JJ is not here to defend himself. But at, at least between you and I, one of the things that uh, has always seemed consistent is that we should nominate candidates who can win in, can in districts that they need to fight for. But in our base, we should nominate the progressives and that is exactly what we saw happen here. I, I think it's it's beautiful, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, uh, the candidate, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, uh, she was backed by groups like uh, Democratic Socialists of America, so she was definitely pulling the, uh, I guess, the axis to the left a little bit. Um, the DSA which are the people with the roses after their handles on Twitter, that's what I've learned. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's uh, definitely a uh, she got a solid issue profile that uh, was appealing within the district. I think she's probably moving even the mainstream of the party a little bit because a big issue that she made was uh, the uh, recent immigration crisis created by the Trump administration and taking a bold stand on the abolition of the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency, also known as ICE. And that is a, uh, that is a cause that's being taken up you know, more and more by uh, some mainstream figures in the party, uh, potential uh, presidential candidates. Uh, so yeah, she's uh, definitely kind of, I really hate the term Overton window, and I would argue at length that it's not really a thing, but uh, oh, she's doing her part to move it. That. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I am convinced that it's just not real. So yeah, we, we might have to get into that in the group. Uh, but yeah, yeah, it's. Uh, I think this is the space where that is really possible to do. I mean, it's a very, very liberal district, very, uh, you know, dark blue, a lot, a uh, very young district that's been mentioned. So uh, really. You know, some of the things that have changed here is that uh, they've got a candidate that more accurately represents the people that live there. Uh, it's a young district, largely uh, Latino, Latina, 
um, Joe Crowley, uh, he's you know, an old white guy. He's relatively liberal, I'd say. I mean, you'd have to be to advance in the ranks of the House Democratic Caucus, and he was uh, chair of the House Caucus, uh, and he's been fairly critical of the Trump administration as well. But there is a whole other level, and he just wasn't on it. And he's actually extremely popular in this district. Like even losing that seat, I, I think something like two thirds of the voters who were at Sitfold approved of his performance. Sure, I mean they just you know someone came along <coughs> that was a better match, and yeah. you know that's what democracy is all about. And this is again where if you want to move the party to the left, this is where to do it. Uh, there's been a lot of focus on some kind of figures that are kind of m marginal and annoying uh, within the caucus, you know, just because they take votes that, uh, you know, confirm a various Trump appointee, or they might take some vote against a party priority, or at least water down a party priority. The names that come to mind most often now are like Joe Manchin, Claire McCaskill, um, uh, trying to think uh Heidi Heitkamp, uh, but these are also states that – these are all uh, senators representing states that Trump won by double digits and states where he's also still very popular. And the idea that you could run a DSA candidate in any of these states or you know, even someone remotely in the same universe of uh, issue priorities and style and prevail, you know – in the primary, let alone the general election against a Republican, just it seems like folly to me. It's a it's a way to get more very, very hard right Republicans elected. But you know, this is where we can do it, where we can really you know, show the bleeding edge of where the party needs to be. Yeah, a district like the Bronx or like San Francisco can, you know, support a candidate that we want to see. I think we all want to see. It's yeah, you know, the sticks of Alabama where you have to get the guy who's running on a platform of legalizing noodling. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, or, you know, for that matter, uh, here in the uh, Northwest, downtown Seattle and Pramila Jayapal. Absolutely. You know, kind of where the party can be going in the future, certainly to show us the way. And, you know, hopefully, you know, make some of these, you know, more critical ideas you know, whether it's things like universal health care or uh, more aggressive responses to climate change or economic justice and uh, reform of criminal justice. I mean, this is where they can kind of take these stands and start trying to move them into the mainstream. We, uh, we're in a kind of a weird place here in Portland. Our, uh, our legislature, Earl Blumenthal, or Blumenthal is mm -hmm. uh, he, he's an old white guy, but Portland is the whitest major city in America by, like, a mile. It's not even close. Uh, so it, it kind of fits, except for the whole age thing. We are a very young city, but he's going out of his way to be, and I guess he's always been super progressive, but he's going out of his way to be very vocal about being super progressive now. I, I think just reading the zeitgeist, trying to insulate himself a bit. But he, he's fully sure. on the abolish ice uh, train all right. Yeah. Well, it's good to see, you know, for a guy that's been around uh, quite a long time. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. No, and he, he seems to be doing a lot of, uh, like, constituent outreach and whatnot. He, he seems like a great guy. I, I voted for him. 
Sure. Um, and, and part part of that was just I didn't have any idea whose challenges were, and I'm not excited to see. But also, I feel like he's done a pretty good job, and he, mm. he's definitely trying to keep with where the, the the liberal view of the party is. So I'm happy with him. Sure. Yeah. All right. Um, and I, I guess the other thing that we'll talk about before we go into our court uh, rewind is that, well, there's there's been again an uptick in in violence, political violence. Um, some of it targeted. I'm not sure exactly what we know about the the shootings in Maryland, but uh, the short story is that a, a man with a long running feud with a newspaper, um, he has sued them before. He went on long Facebook screeds and Twitter screeds about a particular journalist who he, he named by name uh, and, and seemingly tracked while he shot up the building. Five people were dead, at least when I saw the numbers today. I don't know since then. Um, and pretty much the question in everybody's mind is the president has been directly a- attacking journalists and encouraging this sort of vigilanteism for a while. And I think people are justifiably scared this might be linked. Yeah, I mean, well, the language that gets used is particularly eliminationist and scary. You know, the president talks about the media being the greatest enemies of the American people. You know, a man who sits down with uh, Kim Jong-un, but comes out and says the Washington Post is the greatest threat that we face. It It's a little bit mind-boggling there, just on its own, the audacity of it, you know, and just so strange to see that kind of description in a democracy. We had an episode a couple weeks ago where I pointed out a, I think it was a Quinnipiac poll, that had mm-hmm. a majority, 51%, an outright majority of the Republican Party agreeing to the statement that a free press is an enemy of the people. It's just madness. Absolute madness. I mean, you know, the First Amendment has no proper meeting anymore. You know, the, the, we'll, we'll get into that more in the courts. But, yeah, just boggling. Absolutely boggling. Now, the, the origin of this beef with the newspaper, which served um, Anne Arundel County, suburban county of Baltimore. Um, mm-hmm. And it was, it, the company was actually owned by the, the Baltimore Sun Company. Um, they shared mm-hmm. a, a parent of But, uh, the the origin of this was apparently the the paper reported on a domestic violence charge he was convicted of accurately reported on domestic violence charge he was uh, he sued them for for slander or libel whichever one is printed I forget um, and the the court dismissed the the charge because it was accurate information and he's been on a tear since apparently the late nineties and it just Wow. It seems like something pushed him over the edge, and I have a hard time believing that this demonization of the press in everyday life has not contributed to that. Right. Just the idea that, yeah, it's something that's okay to do. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, he's been pissed at these guys for a long time. Something mm-hmm. pushed him over the edge. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, speaking of uh, some of this kind of irresponsible rhetoric, I mean, the other thing that came out this week uh trump is apparently upset at uh, congresswoman uh, maxine waters 
she's called for further protests, and there's been a bit of debate over the role of civility and what is on or off limits when dealing with the private lives of Trump administration people. Uh, just last weekend, you know, Sarah Huckabee Sanders got kicked out of a restaurant because you know the owners didn't care for her politics. And if in the days leading up to that, uh, crowds of protesters uh, chased uh, the Secretary of Homeland Security and uh, Stephen Miller out of Mexican restaurants because they are horrible trolls. Yeah. Uh, God forbid you have to be confronted with evidence of you know other people's displeasure. That would be you know abhorrent. Yeah. So Maxine Waters said, you know, this is you know an important method of protest to you know show up and you know let these people know that no, they don't get to have normal lives while they are doing these terrible things to thousands and thousands of people. And Trump's response to that was basically to get on Twitter and threaten her, saying that you know it'd be terrible if you know someone did something to you, you know, someone to, tried to assault you. And so, yeah, her office has been bombarded with death threats. She's had to cancel events this week just to stay, you know, stay safe. And so, I mean, it's unbelievable this is coming from the president. And got kind of chided by her own party for it. Nancy Pelosi told her she, she shouldn't have said any of that, basically. Yeah, and I, I'm torn. I, I think Pelosi's probably wrong on balance. But uh, I think so too. But I think that was an easy yeah. thing for her to do. Maxine Waters does not make a lot of friends. Right. She's not a easy person to get along with. She's a bomb thrower. Um, I I personally don't care for her that much. Yeah. Um, but she was right on this one, and you have to go, you know, whether somebody was right or wrong, not based on how you like her. So I I see how Pelosi got to where she got to, but. Right. No, I, I mean, don't agree with it. Yeah, I mean, the, the the party certainly does not want Maxine Waters to be seen as the face of the Democrats on Capitol Hill, and the idea that these are the people that you will empower if you elect Democrats to a majority in the fall. But at the same time, yeah, he's directly threatening a member of your caucus. You don't back him up in that case. You stand with the member of Congress who's being, yeah, physically threatened with this. It's terrible. Yep. And kind of on that same note, we uh, here in Portland, as we record this, are uh, under a riot advisory. Police have declared a riot downtown. It seems like a fairly common occurrence. I've recorded video and pictures from some of the things declared a riot before. You can find them on the group if you search through it. Uh, but it, it is a clash between Patriot Prayer and you know, the Proud Boys, who have been on a tear in Portland lately. They, they've been beating people, like hopping out of trucks, burning coal, because, of course, uh, and, and beating the crap out of people in North Portland before running back across the river into Vancouver. Uh, it's been documented. Uh, Willamette Week had a nice series on it. And they've been kind of out in force, and they've decided to make a statement today. They chose today because it's the same day that Portland joined many, many other cities across the country in protesting the family separation with the news that the uh, the children who were previously separated from families are not being returned at this point. Um, and they, they started some shit. I mean, if you go to the Oregonian, uh, their website, Oregon Live, they've got photos of people with bloody faces and antifas in one park and patriot prayers in the other park and 
just screaming at each other uh, across the the street. There's blood on the street. It, it's they came here to stir up some shit. Mm-hmm. The, the only reason you see Patriot Prayer here, they they want to start some shit. It's, That's kind of why they locate there too. They know there's a lot of people that uh, they're going to disagree with them. They can start a fight. Yeah. Yeah. No. Uh, and Mike Bivens, who's a great freelance reporter I, I don't believe he's tied to a news organization they moved to portland a while ago and he's been great the oregonian uh, freelances out to him a, a few times for things like this he he's on the scene right now and 30 seconds ago he tweeted that shit really did just hit the fan there's apparently like a full-on brawl going on downtown right now mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so yeah getting scared yeah yikes all right well, we'll we'll turn from that, and we're going to spend quite a bit of time here on a, a court rewind. The court just ended its term. One of the things we discussed last week that kind of got lost, um, they pulled the complete dodge on the gerrymandering cases. Complete in total dodge. Yeah. Uh, nine O decisions, both of which completely sidestepped any issue. Uh, just give a quick recap because messed up last week. Uh, Wisconsin was declared null and void for lack of standing. Uh, you have to be in the district that was gerrymandered, not just in the state. Um, and then in Baltimore, or not Baltimore, in Maryland, Benesek v. Lamone, they decided 9-0 that uh, the court was doing things okay down on its own end and sent the, the case back down to them to you know, do some more stuff, just mm-hmm. some stuff. There was uh, there was a Texas case this week that was uh, racial gerrymandering, and I'm trying to think if that made it all the way to the Supreme Court or if that was still at the appellate level. Uh, that basically let almost all of the districts stand except for one that they ended up redoing. Uh, just a moment here, and I'll pull that up. Yeah, but the idea is that at least between for the main cases that we've been eagerly anticipating uh, this uh, this session. Uh, the courts decided that uh, the plaintiffs who brought the case who were individual voters in various districts throughout Wisconsin and uh, Maryland did not have standing to sue. They weren't impacted by I guess, the map as a whole, just their district, I guess, was uh, where they really drew the line. So where they've left it open for potential challenges further down the line would be if an organization that uh, operates throughout the state of Wisconsin, for instance, might theoretically have standing later. Now, I think the court is going to be a lot less hospitable towards challenges towards gerrymandering or even willing to go into cases like this. I'm just, with uh, the other apocalyptic news from this week. I, I'm but. a little confused about that, because at oral argument, I counted yeah. seven justices who were deeply uncomfortable with Wisconsin's map. And I, I don't just mean like, yeah, these are gerrymandering, but who cares? I mean like, this is an affront to democracy. And well, I, well, I don't get how you, how you say that in oral argument, and then just decide not to do anything about it. Uh, that's... What it keeps coming back to, and I think what uh, Justice Roberts, you know, Chief Justice Roberts, has argued many times is that you know these are yeah offenses to democracy. You're absolutely right. They 
uh, give majority control and supermajority control in some cases to a minority of the voters. Uh, but they keep coming back to this catch-22, the idea that uh, voters should somehow be able to fix this in the ballot box rather than bring in some kind of judicial intervention. Of course, you know the uh, the politicians who benefit from gerrymandering schemes of this nature have effectively insulated themselves from change at the ballot box. And some of that may be in the process of changing. There may be extreme enough circumstances in Wisconsin and some other places that may, at least in part, overwhelm the uh, built-in advantages that you know, Republicans have created for themselves uh, by manipulating the map and, you know, Torturing where the torturing where the district lines should be, uh, but I think it's a long shot. You know, at best, you know, there may be change on a statewide level, and that at least would provide some check on uh, how the map is going to be done going forward. But yeah, it, that that's really what it's come down to for Roberts again and again is that well, if uh, voters are harmed or don't approve of the way these uh, districts are drawn, they should vote for people who will change it. And it just makes you smack your head again and again. They don't have the opportunity to. <laughs> their, their voting power has been shattered uh, by you know, highly sophisticated uh, algorithms and analysis of where the voters live. I guess they could all just start moving you know, from district to district to try and but yeah, that, that's that's crazy. That's that's I, I don't I can't I was stupid to even say it. <laughs> so yeah. Now the other cases that came down this week, um, one you in particular have been following quite closely was Janice. Right, and that was the uh, last uh, last day of the term. They brought this one forward, and uh, this is speaking of the First Amendment from earlier today. I mean, this is a case that overturned a precedent from 41 years ago uh, concerning public sector employee unions. And there's been a compromise in this field for a very long time. Uh, public sector unions, they do involve uh, people who work for the government, and there's a long string of cases and case law that people who work for the government have a property interest in their employment. Uh, for, well, what conflicts with that is there are a great deal of uh, public employee union contracts that involve a concept called union security, that everyone who works within a particular bargaining unit and is represented by a particular union are obligated to pay dues or fees to the union uh, to pay for their representation. Uh, and that's created, or at least it had, uh, 40 years ago, a, a First Amendment issue that was visited by the courts and the compromise that was imposed by the courts at that time was that uh, uh, employees who did not wish to become a member of the union that represented them, uh, they would still be required to pay the cost of their representation, but all of the uh, political activity, you know, the, whatever was charged for that, had to be backed out of what would be charged to them. They would pay only for the cost of their representation and bargaining or in uh, representation with the employer in terms of discipline and other matters. That was and Abood, right? That, that was the Abood decision, the uh, Detroit School District. 
And yeah, that was 1977. And since uh, since uh, Samuel Alito got to the court, you know, 12 years ago, uh, he's had this case in his sights for a long time. Uh, in several cases now, I think uh, the first one where he came really close was Harris v. Quinn in 2014. Uh, but I guess the circumstances of that case limited it to a specific type of public employees, uh, home uh, health care workers. Uh, and then in 2016, uh, they also came close, but for uh, the sudden death of Antonin Scalia in the Friedrichs v. California Teachers Association. So it, it's been a long time coming, and it's been this novel uh, approach to the First Amendment here and the uh, public sector union work. It, it rests on this notion that because uh, the government is the employer and because public sector unions are trying to influence the behavior of the government as an employer, that somehow all activities performed by a public sector union are therefore political and therefore employees cannot be compelled to pay anything as a condition of their employment without violating their First Amendment rights. It's an extremely novel approach to uh, the concept of free speech. Um, Justice uh, Kagan was uh, extremely critical of this interpretation, and rightly so. And yeah, I've been kicking it around a lot, but it's just one of a series of extremely disturbing cases where the uh, rights that are conferred by the First Amendment by this conservative majority are only really to be applicable or used in any effective way in ways that harm small people, that uh, work to the benefit of corporations, you know, whether that's the Hobby Lobby case or uh, just a couple weeks ago in uh, Masterpiece Cakes, you know, the idea that uh, corporations basically can exempt themselves from certain portions of the law because they see it as some violation of their First Amendment rights, whether that's you know free exercise of religion or you know something along those lines. And yeah, it, it, it's terrible. I mean, it's it's this new and very you know dark doctrine, and it's going to be applied going forward. I mean, this is going to be a majority of the court probably for the next 30, 40 years or more. Pretty much the extent of our adult lifetimes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, not to be too depressing about it. Yeah, it's a an approach to uh, legal rights that's straight out of uh, you know the Lochner era, which lasted for you know a good thirty years on its own there. And yeah, it was a terrible time for workers, just for in terms of what legal rights were available. Uh, we also had the travel ban case, which was probably one of the most disturbing opinions of the term, at least for me, in that Kennedy uh, went out of his way to demonstrate the unconstitutional nature of mm -hmm. the, the animus towards Muslims in the travel ban, specifically called it unconstitutional, and yet still voted to uphold it, saying that the court had no oversight of it and it was up to the president yeah. to uh, yeah. stay within the bounds of the Constitution. Plenary powers, you know, the, well, the president and, of course, the Congress, you know, mm. the Congress can intervene and restrict the president. Well, they would, but they're kind of broken, too, right now. So and so I guess every branch of government is now going to abdicate, abdicate its responsibility to 
be a check on the executive now. Uh, you mentioned the Masterpiece Cake Chop decision. That was uh, made 7-2. Uh, the only justices voting against that was Sotomayor and Ginsburg. It was speculated that this was a tactical move by the liberals. They could use this opinion in order to uh, kind of justify a, a decision in the, the travel ban case mm-hmm. in Swing Kennedy, which they did to their way of thinking, but not to you know, actually doing anything. Yeah, yeah. So, well, I mean, so in the end, they traded away the ability to discriminate against gay people for Kennedy agreeing with them but not doing shit. Yeah. Uh, I mean, on some level, I guess their opinion kept it more within the realm of uh, the procedure again and the specifics of the case. I mean, that's really the best thing you can say for it is that the court's now taken up a case from Florida Mm -hmm. for next term about basically the same stuff, but able to make a wider precedent. Yeah. And the justice that hears it is going to be even more hostile to gay rights than, well, it's absolutely going to be more hostile to gay rights than Anthony Kennedy. This was like actually a pet cause for Kennedy. I, I guess this was a step too far. But yeah. gay marriage in this country is basically a 20-year story uh, of Justice Kennedy on a crusade, starting yeah. with Lawrence v. Texas in, in 1997 and culminating with Oberfeld v. Hodges. Right, right. So, I mean, he's... I, I, I am so frustrated with the man, you know? Because this is something that, on some level, he's clearly cared about. But the way he's timed his exit from the court is just going to maximize the destruction of that legacy because he's got his own idiosyncrasies on you know gay rights but those are not shared by the rest of the conservative block you've got three other justices in the block that he tends to vote with who were dead set against him who mocked his reasoning in cases like obergefell and yeah, they're going to be replaced by one more that thinks exactly like them and not like him. Yeah, and, I, I mean, I kind of get it. Kennedy's not a liberal. He's never going to be confused for no. Rico. And having rights to something doesn't necessarily mean that other people have to respect that. And I get that. But it's just this case in particular seems to piss all over something he, he literally spent the latter part of his career building. I mean, this was a very public journey for him to, to this. Yeah. It was Kennedy. He wrote every single important opinion building up to this. Like every opinion on gay rights yeah. was his. And then on this one, he just limps away quietly. And mm-hmm. he has to know, like you said, he's going to be replaced by somebody who does not agree with him on that. Right. Who's going to be more hostile to gay rights and who's going to be more hostile? Let's uh, you know, the big fight on the courts in our time is over abortion rights and that's also you know and <sighs> kennedy was frustrating also in that he was a pretty inconsistent uh ally for abortion rights he wrote the casey decision which modified roe uh probably put some more severe limits and opened up the door for uh, more aggressive regulation, but he also wrote a lot of subsequent opinions like uh, Gonzalez v. Carhartt, which were just awful. You know, the the reasoning that he brings to it are you know, is abortion is icky, therefore this uh, particular procedure uh, 
DNX, for example, this can be regulated because I think it's icky. And that's really what his opinion comes down to in some of these cases like that. Uh, it's not great lawmaking. Uh, I think the conservatives would put up with it because it would get the result they wanted. But you could also see a lot of contempt from the way that uh, they reacted to it. You know, Scalia in particular was uh, known for raking Kennedy over the coals when they did end up disagreeing or not able to come to a same uh, opinion. And I think with some justification, you know, the reasoning in some of these cases just was not legally sound. And I think when there is a conservative majority, uh, they're going to have, it, they've made, it's pretty going, going to be fairly easy for them to attack the reasoning in a case like Obergefell or to chip away at uh, the lines that Kennedy set in Casey. I, I think you'll see more chipping than outright abandonment. Like even with gay sure. marriage, what are they going to do with this? There, There's hundreds of thousands, if not millions of married gay couples in this country. Every state has yeah. procedures in place for this. You can't just put that genie back in the bottle. You can, you can start nibbling around the edges. And you can certainly make it a lot easier to discriminate against them. And yeah, well, shoot, you know, make it so that uh, it's as easy to get a uh, marriage certificate for a gay couple as it is to get an abortion in Texas. Just, <laughs> yeah. There, there are three clerks in the state that will issue you a license. <coughs> Hope you can drive to Austin. You know. You mentioned the abortion issue. One of the other big cases was uh, the National Institute of Family and Life Advocates versus Bacara. Bacara is the Attorney General of California, and that's how he ended up with his name on the case. Uh, California law required crisis pregnancy centers to uh, display information about abortion if right. patients wanted it. Um, and this was overturned as an infringement of their religious rights. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm still uncomfortable with, you know, entities like corporations not having or having legal rights. That bothers me a little bit. Mm -hmm. I, I've actually I've gotten well, a, a freedom of religious conscience again for a corporation. Yeah. Who has the religious conscience? I, I've it's actually legal fiction in the first place. Yeah. The corporate personhood as, as a whole is legal fiction. I've actually gone on this. I understand why it was legal. Fiction. The, yeah. the laws written to criminalize behavior were written about people. But obviously, corporations can still be guilty of crimes. So things like theft and fraud, for the purposes of those laws, people should refer to corporations. Fine. It's a hack on the law. But we've had 200 years to fix that. We've mm -hmm. had 200 years to get this into a place where we don't have to assume corporations are people. We can just write laws where corporations can violate the laws and be punished. I, the whole idea of corporate personhood is antiquated at this point. Yeah, and dangerous. Because now it's, you know, we've got, you know, we have the protections that are meant for individuals, but instead they're being used to allow corporations to ignore the law, or in some cases to overturn the law entirely here. And this was a particularly nonsensical case. Uh, the court has upheld a number of uh, state regulations and limitations on uh, abortion providers, you know, requiring them to read. Uh, a whole bunch of gobbledygook about uh, the risks of abortion, which are you know exaggerated and largely untrue, but you know providers are compelled by these regulations to 
lay this line on you know some you know woman in a crisis who is trying to get some reproductive health uh, and that's been upheld as perfectly fine even though that i would say is a form of compelled speech and it also places a burden on the woman who is attempting to get the abortion but you know that is a regulation that is fine but here if we try and get uh, these crisis pregnancy centers which are a menace an absolute menace to you know tell some basic truths about the uh, services that they're ostensibly providing no no we can't do that because that infringes upon their freedom of speech their freedom of religion it's it's Alice in Wonderland at the Supreme Court, and it's only about to get worse. We had a a different sort of split in another case. Uh, we discussed this previously, but South Dakota v. Wayfair with the internet sales taxes. Uh, case. Yeah. Justice Roberts sided with the liberals. Justice Ginberg sided with the conservatives, and they, they swung the day on requiring internet uh, companies to collect sales tax. I mentioned before that I was... A little bit on. I like the result. I, I yeah. think the result is fair. I was a little uncomfortable with the reasoning. They, it basically acknowledged that this should have been done from the beginning, but the internet needed the space to grow. And any time uh-huh. that justices decide to not apply the law for a while and then do, it bothers me a little bit uh, because they yeah. use that justification with. Uh, cases attacking affirmative action where they acknowledge that it was put in place to correct something, but now that it's been corrected, you know, totally not okay. And they, they use this in the Voting Rights Act we brought up last week when I was on the same rant, and it's just, it's a strange place for me to see a court be, a court that's supposed to be, like, unfallible on the law, acknowledge that, no, we were just pretending well, because they needed yeah. it. But yeah, the court does respond to circumstances that change in a changing world. But yeah, it's not the way it's really supposed to go. It's not supposed to be dependent on the personalities on the court. But I mean, there's a whole there's a whole legal doctrine, philosophy, you know, legal realism, which basically says everything we say about the law and uh, you know the high-mindedness behind it is nonsense. It's all deeply political. It all depends upon who's there and what results they want to see. There's probably and, more truth to that than I'm comfortable with. Yeah, it's a pretty extreme position, and legal scholars tend to hate it. But uh, I mean, there's definitely something to it. Uh, but yeah, I mean, as far as this case itself, you know, looking over this. It's it's the least objectionable thing that the court probably did all year long. Oh, so like I said, I'm actually in favor yeah. of the decision. I just wish yeah. they would have taken a different rationale to it, one that's less useful as an attack vector on other things, other yeah. things of progressive nature, I should say. Oh, sure. I mean, yeah. <laughs> you think of the timing. I mean, there's, I think, a whole lot of mom and pops that uh, got blown away by Amazon that kind <laughs> of wish this might have been in place. 15 years ago yeah, seriously but, uh, it's basically yeah. just us picking the the monopolies like yeah you know instead of letting them fight it out and granted amazon was kicking some ass but we decided to freeze it at a time and place and say these are the the big guys yeah yeah now it's in place and i guess now amazon can certainly compete while paying sales tax so yeah. that's fine <laughs> yeah. so uh 
kind of surprising to me based on that one, which Ginsburg joined in. She did not join in the decision 7-2 that legalized uh, sports betting federally. States have the right to choose whether they can or not. Mm -hmm. Uh, That was a 7-2 decision. Kagan and Breyer joined with the more conservative wing. I also like this one. I like sports betting. It's Mm -hmm. fun. I mean, I I recognize lotteries and gambling and whatnot has a disproportionate effect on certain people. And my state, Oregon in particular, basically funds its education system off like 800 seriously addicted gamblers. Um, Yeah. But... I enjoy gambling from time to time. I, when I first moved to Oregon, the first time I lived here, we actually did football betting through the lottery with like an over and under, and you can bet the spread and all that. Like it was a full on deal, and I'm I'm kind of happy to get back to that. I'd love yeah. to spend like five bucks a week doing that. And previously, before, like my other complaint, they basically chose a monopoly. They let Vegas do it and nobody else. Federal mm-hmm. law exempted Nevada and banned it in 49 other states. Yeah. I mean, I, I kind of see, I put this one in the box as, you know, the right decision for possibly the wrong reasons. You know, I'm not sure that there's any reason that the Congress shouldn't be able to regulate this sort of thing in this way. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it was a dumb law. It needed to go off the books. I'm glad it's gone. (laughs) Uh, on slightly better terms, and this is going to be our last like good news of this little uh, journey that we're on. The uh, digital privacy case with Roberts joining right. the liberal wing of the court in a 5-4 decision, it, it, it's very narrow. Um, it, it's not anything to like really, really cheer about, but it is the right decision. It, it doesn't really protect anything other than, well, essentially location data, but there is a precedent for some other data if anybody wants to challenge on it. Um, yeah. They, they do away with certain information uh, under the third-party doctrine. The third-party doctrine, and I may be misstating this, you can correct me if I'm not, um, Mm -hmm. if I am, is that as an individual, any data you give away to a third party, they can choose what to do with. They can voluntarily turn it over to cops if they want to. Um, And the court ruled in this case that location data from cell phones is so pervasive and such a requirement, you, you literally can't have a cell phone without giving this information to the cell phone carrier, that it, it shouldn't fall under the same category. Yeah, yeah, that's that's right. That's an accurate statement of both the doctrine and, yeah, the state of the law at this point, which I think that makes a fair amount of sense. It's a fairly limited ruling, but like you say, it's it's acknowledging the state of technology and the state of the industry today, at least in a small way. So that's... It's a good sign here. Yeah, and like I said, it does give a, a framework for other sorts of data collection to be challenged. Uh, if they meet the same pervasive and required nature and all these other things, it seems like their reasoning would be the same. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, uh, we have a couple more here that are not so great. Uh, the workplace arbitration ruling, that was Epic Systems v. Lewis, Kind of a, a precursor to the Janus decision, but uh, yeah. this one said that employers, instead of you know being sued like normal people, can force workers to pursue claims for wage theft and other issues in individual, not group, arbitration. Yeah, and it's a killer for being able to enforce some of these Fair Labor Standards Act claims, because you know traditionally the way that you get it done against an employer that say is 
uh, I'm trying to think of an example here without being too punitive, but let's say you got a Jimmy. Let's say you got a Jimmy John's that is routinely uh, paying its employees for you know 35 hours a week, but it's making them all work 50 hours a week or something like that. Uh, the way that it makes sense to bring a legal action is to have a bunch of employees come together and file a lawsuit to you know on a class action basis because the claims for any one individual, you know, they may not be that great. It may be difficult to really pursue it very far and especially get make it worth, make it worth the time for an attorney. Yeah. So you, you put together a class to bring an action effectively. And here the court said that it has given employers a great deal of power to uh, force their employees to, uh, yeah, accept a different venue and accept a scenario where they can't effectively uh, pursue their rights. So I have a question about that. Under my state, um, you can file a complaint with the Bureau of Labor and Industries. They will pursue your, your wage theft or whatever and get that money back for you and send you a check. It's actually a fairly painful, uh, painless process. I accidentally mm. started one filing a complaint and they, they resolved my complaint but they also sent me the paperwork for getting money which I didn't actually need um, mm -hmm. but it, it seemed fairly straightforward would this preclude something like that would I no longer be able to go to a state agency who would handle all this for me uh, I think it preclude hmm. I, I think it would probably depend on the nature of the contract that your employer you know forced upon you or a waiver that they forced upon you at the time of hire. I mean, they could certainly uh, present something to you either now or subsequent to now that said that you gave up your rights to pursue in this venue, this venue, this venue, and the only place where you have the opportunity to pursue a claim could be in this uh, arbitration. So yeah, they, they could uh, foreclose that process from you under this. I, I have a strong, strong feeling that that is can't be allowed like what the hell mm -hmm. regardless of what your contract states if they're not paying you the right amount that's that's like a crime the state should always be able to intervene in that case yeah i will i mean they that would be you know an enforcement action sure but it's not going to get you paid you know the the employer might be subject to fines but it won't end with you actually getting the money you are owed that requires a legal action and you have to seek damages well i mean they they do all that they, they yeah. seek the damages for you i hmm. yeah uh, up to I, I think they handle up to like seven thousand dollars anything more than that you have to take private out sure huh. all right uh the the other extra depressing case was uh jesner v arab bank in which a 5-4 majority of the court, which was the conservatives, including Kennedy, held that uh, foreign corporations may not be sued in American courts for complicity in human rights abuses abroad. This backs away on something that had been actually a fairly powerful tool in a lot of pressure groups' cases, which was bringing action in American courts for this. Right, because, I mean, are they going to sue someone in Iraq or... <laughs> Yeah, try and access the courts uh, in some distant venue where... Yeah, in particular, I believe this was used against Chevron in a, a number of cases uh, relating to their purchase of, of Texaco and various abuses that they did in Central and South America. Sure, yeah. 
Yeah, it, it's been a rough term. That's the only way to describe it. You know, we kind of kicked around in the group exactly how it came to this, uh, or at least why it seems so much worse than in previous years. And best I could come up with was that they were holding off on anything particularly controversial while uh, Scalia reached room temperature and below. Uh, and then once they got Gorsuch back onto the Gorsuch onto the court, then all systems go in terms of pursuing a highly ideological and fairly consequential docket. You know, I think that's probably understating it to say fairly consequential. It's going to have some major earthquakes in huge sections of the country. I, I think there's a lot of truth to what you say in that. Um, and I, I, I do believe that's the main uh, pressing issue here. I think one of the things, though, that was really mentioned in the group as we were discussing was uh, Roberts did not really change sides as much as he previously he was never really a Kennedy in terms of a swing better, but on big yeah. issues, he seemed very cognizant of the uh, court's position in public opinion. He was willing to dance on certain issues. He saved Obamacare by mm -hmm. basically just being crazy. It, it was a very strange legal argument, but he did save it. Yeah. Um, and in this case, uh, this year, the only cases he really jumped over on uh, was a digital privacy case, uh, and it was another find it here um uh no i guess just the digital privacy case yeah uh I've, measure... sorry go on. i've characterized it as his uh i guess the threshold being his tolerance for total nonsense and yeah in some of these cases it's been reached but in a lot it just wasn't they did the liberal side get gorsuch for one opinion um this one uh, law striking down uh, or striking down a law that allowed the government to deport immigrants um, as unconstitutionally vague what a, a serious and violent crime was although there was a lot of hand wringing in the liberal sphere that that was basically just Gorsuch laying the cover for some other very shit down the road using the reasoning yes uh, a potential attack on Chevron deference it's a doctrine that has allowed the executive branch to govern effectively when Congress has uh, written a law that is uh, open to interpretation. You know, it's really, you know, I think it's the main defense against the various cases that have brought, been brought against the Affordable Care Act and things like that, or especially uh, King v. Burwell in uh, 2015. Uh, but you know, Roberts has found his you know justifications and things like the taxing power. But yeah, the the idea of Chevron deference is that if a law is uh, sufficiently vague and the executive branch's interpretation of it is legally permissible, then the executive branch is able to enforce it in that way in their under their interpretation. Um, but yeah, a lot of conservatives cannot stand this. Uh, they would like to limit. You know the activity of the government or the ability to regulate much, much further, and that would be the ultimate end of uh, gutting Chevron. Things like uh, the Obama administration's regulation of uh, carbon or emissions, or uh, things like uh, DACA. You get rid of Chevron deference, and it suddenly becomes much more difficult 
for the executive branch to do these things without some explicit authorization by Congress. It just tears us back to a place where the, the president is powerless, except not because they're still allowing him to do everything via executive order? Well, yeah. Uh, well, that starts to get uh, narrowed down as well as to what can fall under that. But, yeah, I, I think you, uh, you tear out Chevron deference and, yeah, you start moving back towards a 19th century, ex- 19th century executive. Which sounds which, great to me with gerrymandered to shift districts. Yeah, yeah. Well, you look at it and... You guys want to have a parliament? Proportionate representation. Then, then yeah. we'll, we'll talk about it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just not compatible with 21st century government governance in a country of 330 million people. <laughs> it's just not how we can govern anymore. Well, I mean, we could. We just would have to make some other some other changes. I wouldn't mind seeing a parliamentary style democracy. Like, oh, you know, yeah, kind of UK style with the executive's just the leader of the largest parla- uh, party in parliament, so you know he can get legislation through, and he never can't. Well, then yeah. you, you get a new prime minister. Right. Uh, but that requires well, things like, you know, parliament being supreme. No, they can't have their hands tied. There is no constitution. They can do whatever the hell they want. Yeah. All right. That was actually a really bad anecdote. Just end that up. I don't know why I went off on that <laughs> one. But we'll, we'll wrap it up here because we're, we're hitting 730. Um there's only two of us, so I, I think we'll just skip the what are we watching this week, uh, unless you it's have America's, something you want to talk about. It's America's birthday, Brock. Oh, that's right. <laughs> I'm actually doing it something may not, special to work for that. It may not be around much longer, so celebrate it, it while you really can. It really might not be. I'm getting <laughs> a little bit scared. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, let's just finish all that off then. One thing we forgot to mention, Kennedy's retiring, so next court, way worse. Yep. Uh, look for that on uh, July 9th, according to Trump. Yeah, so. this this was the shitty low budget starter film. Next term is going to be just amp up all the shittiness. Whoo, yeah. that's good. That's good. All right, have a good week, Dan. Hey, good luck. <laughs> bye. All right, bye.